So please do have your Bibles open at Numbers chapter 26. Uh, let me give you the big idea of this, this evening's sermon in three words. God is faithful. If there's anything we're going to take away this evening, it is as God is faithful. And he shows himself to be faithful in this passage in three ways. He is faithful to his people. Number one, and that's the whole of chapter six. He is faithful to his promises. Chapter 27, verses one through 11. And he is faithful to provide his people with a new leader. Chapter 27, verse 12 to the end. A new leader in Joshua, who points us to the even greater leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ground to cover this evening, so I want us just to get stuck straight into this passage. God is faithful to his people. As we pick things up this evening in chapter 26, and as it opens with the words after the plague, it's reminding us that the first generation, they're finished. They're over. They're gone. 24,000 died in the plague, the last of the first generation. The final two verses of chapter 26 tell us that Joshua and Caleb are still alive. And we know that Moses is still alive. So put very simply, there are only three people alive from that first generation. All the names that are recorded on your page in front of you in the second census of numbers, it's a new generation. And as we are introduced to them, we should be filled with a real sense of excitement and anticipation. Because every time we've met someone from this second generation in the chapters just immediately before this one, it's a real sense that they're not going to be anything like their fathers or mothers. They're not going to be a faithless generation that go backwards in unbelief. But they're going to be a faithful generation who go forwards in faith. In fact, we got a little hint of that last week with Phineas, who made atonement and stopped the plague by killing those who committed that heinous sin in the tent of meeting. Now, if you were here for the very start of this series, I wasn't even here for the very start of this series, um, you will remember in chapters 1 and 2 that that's where we have the first census, first generation. And it's rather striking that if you compare the two the two censuses that they're organized in the same way. God commands a census to be taken. God says he wants all the names of all the men who are fighting age, that is 20 and upward. And in both censuses, we read about their clans and their families. What's different? Well, what's different is in the second census, we're given more detail. We're given detail about those who rebelled, the families, the tribes, revolted. And in the second census, we're also given more information about the various tribes. And the reason for that is this. God will divide the promised land in accordance with the various clans, tribes, depending on their size. If they're a larger one, they'll get a larger piece of land. If they're a smaller one, they'll get a smaller piece 
of land. Now, I had a really fascinating week this week. I, I was uh, up in Edinburgh, and every moment there was free time, I was quickly opening my commentaries in my Bible to, to think, what am I going to preach on numbers? And you pick up all these commentaries, and what they do is, is they, they, they place the first census against the second census, and they, they try and spot all the differences, and they count up all the numbers. And it is a fascinating read which tribes have grown and which tribes have shrunk. The Simeon tribe, one of the most rebellious tribes in the previous chapter, they've shrunk significantly. But you know, the point as you compare them isn't actually to compare the, the number differences. We know from the end of chapter 26 that when the fighting men were counted up, they numbered in total 601,730. If you were to turn to chapter 2, verse 32, you don't need to do it. All of those in the first census numbered 603,550. Let me put it like this. There's only there's under 2,000 of a difference between all of the men who are counted up. And then not part of the census, but after both of them, God counts up the priesthood. In the priesthood that is given in the second census, there are 23,000 Levites. Remember, the Levites will not inherit a portion of the land. God is their inheritance, and those men were not to be fighting men. In the first census, there were 22,000, so there's been an increase by 1,000. Now, what is the point of acknowledging these, these small differences? Well, it's this. God has been faithful to preserve a people for himself. God has a people for himself. This was his purposes to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. This was his purposes in growing them in Egypt, that he would have a people for himself, his treasured possession, a, a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation. And God has been faithful to his people. And, and what's rather striking about that is his people, we know, the first generation, have been faithless. They've continued to, they, they, they continue to revolt and rebel. In verses 8 through 11, we, we get hint of the, remember the episode with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Korah, that great revolt where the Lord had to open up the ground to swallow them because these men contended against the Lord. Remember, the first generation were the generation that kept on grumbling in the wilderness. This was a generation that were brought to the very edge of the promised land and they, and they heard the two reports. And the good report they rejected for the bad report. And yet God has been faithful from their offspring to preserve a people for himself. Even in preserving the Levites, the priesthood, we're being reminded of this. God is faithful to take care of his people's spiritual needs. They will have priests who will serve them in the tabernacle. Priests that will point them to the word of God. As we consider God's faithfulness to his ancient people, brothers and sisters, we must remember God has not changed. God remains faithful to you and I today who are in Christ. You might think, oh, I know that. But remember, you, I, we grumble. 
You, I, we rebel. You and I, we, we're seduced just like the Israelites were seduced by the Moabites. We're seduced by this world. You know, if it was down to us to enter into the new creation, we would not make it because of our faithlessness. But praise be to God, it is not down to us. It is down to him. You know, there's times in my Christian life, because of my own sin, I sometimes wonder to myself, God must be done, done with me now. He must be finished with me now. And yet I remind myself of the gospel. God's never finished. Those he begins a good work in, he'll see it on to completion. Now, I think understanding the faithfulness of God can be difficult in our age. You see, we live in a culture where the air we breathe means that sometimes we've changed the meaning of words. So we live, we used to live in a, in a moral culture, but we now live in a culture of emotion. And so the way that people often understand word is, is via emotion. So for example, take the word good. Historically, the word good means if you want to define good, right, bad, wrong. Today, the word good in a culture of emotion, well, what makes me feel happy, that's what's good. And what is bad, well, whatever makes me feel sad. Let's take it to the word, let's, let's apply the, the moral culture to the word faithfulness. Say faithfulness in the context of marriage. In a moral culture, to be faithful means to uphold the vows that you took on your wedding day. Even if you find yourself in your marriage and there's times you really struggle to love your spouse, you will be faithful because you promised. You made a vow. No matter what. Till death does part. But in a culture of emotion, faithfulness, well, I'll be faithful if I'm still happy. If this person makes me happy, I'll be faithful. But if the going gets tough, I'm going to get going. Because if this makes me unhappy, I ain't going to be faithful. Do you know, as a pastor, just my short time of pastoral ministry, I, I've actually sat with a handful of couples, married couples, and have told me they're separating. And I ask them, why are you separating? Because I don't feel in love anymore. I'm not happy. They don't make me happy. You say, but you promised. You made a vow through thick and thin. And they say, but no, no, no. This doesn't make me happy. Falling out of love. And, and here, here's the reason why I highlight that is because, because we live in this culture of emotion, we can take, we can transplant that way of thinking onto who God is. Well, if I'm being obedient, then God will be happy with me. Then God will be faithful to me. And if I'm not being obedient, well, then God will not be happy with me. He, he won't be faithful to me. Brothers and sisters, you need to know the Bible is a moral culture. God is always faithful. Even the sin of his people, the rejection, the rebellion, did not thwart his purposes for his people. Faithful. He promised them that he would bring them into a promised land. He promised them this glorious inheritance. And God is faithful. 
even in light of their great unfaithfulness. Now, what is the response? What should be our response to a God who is faithful? Well, it's obvious to live by faith in Him, to trust in His promises, to hold Him to His word, to know His character is trustworthy. And fascinatingly, as we come to chapter 27, God shows him faithful to his promises. He makes good on his promises to a small family. When I go to camps and I'm asked to lead at camps, you know, you often get interviewed as a speaker. And one of the most, the most asked questions will be, tell us who some of your heroes are. You know, I'll start giving like the obvious answers and say, Paul. And then someday, some clever person said, like, no, no, don't tell me like the obvious heroes from the Bible. Give me some of your obscure heroes from the Bible. If you ever get asked that question, here's the answer. I've got five female heroines, the daughters of Zelophephad. And these women, these women are so faithful. And this episode that's recorded here at the beginning of Numbers chapter 27 is not a, a diversion in this story. No, this is women who understand who God is and they understand how they're supposed to live in light of who God is. They're supposed to live by faith, trusting in his promises to his people. Let's look at chapter 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophephad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machar, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Terza. So, so here we're introduced to these five daughters. And uh, their father was Zelophephad, and we know that he has died. And these women of the second generation, they knew that the great prize of faith, that the great promise that God had made was a portion in the promised land. But here's the problem. Their father had died, but he had no sons. So that meant their father's name would end. It would be passed on to one of their uncles. And if there was no uncles, a distant relative. It was a patrimonial culture, so it passed on to the son. And these daughters knew that they were not going to receive their father's portion in the promised land. But these five daughters are women of the covenant. They understand a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. They understand that, you know, for, 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 for generations, their people have been nomads. They've been walking, wandering through the wilderness. And in Egypt, they were living in a foreign land in bondage and slavery. But they knew that there was a God who'd made a promise to their great father, Abraham, that he would give him a land. They knew that this promise had been reiterated to Abraham and then Jacob. And they knew that to Manasseh it was given, and therefore to their father, Zelophehad, this promise had been received. 
And these covenant daughters knew that they wanted their father's name to live on, that God would be faithful to them because they are covenant daughters of the covenant God. And so they do something so audacious. Something, if you like, that wasn't cultural. They they go up to Moses and and listen, this, this decision that they make, this wasn't just for themselves because they do it in front of the whole assembly, all of the chiefs and all of the leaders. Verse 2, And they stood before Moses and before Eliezer, the priest, before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. So they make clear their father had died, but he wasn't part of the rebellious people who died during the rebellion of Korah. And so they say, verse 4, why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. You almost think, oh, come on, you know the culture. Doesn't work that way. Look at Moses, verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. <laughs> These women who knew that God is faithful to his covenant purposes, his covenant promises, he's promised a land, they hold God to who he is. They've been trusting in this promise that's been handed down from Abraham through their fathers. And they appeal to God. And Moses brings a case before the Lord. And the Lord says, you're right. And so God says to Moses, you shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. We, we should stand with a real sense of admiration to these women. They get it. What do they get? Get who God is. They get the significance of this promise-making, promise-keeping God. They understood that they were in a strange predicament. Their father had no sons. His name would not live on. But they got it. The weight of these promises are, are of eternal significance because this is... This is the inheritance. It's fascinating. If you were to read verses 52 to think 56 of chapter 26, the key word that keeps on coming up is inheritance, inheritance. These women knew that there was an inheritance from God that was for them. And so God shows him faithful. He makes good on the promises and he says, you will have your inheritance. So significant is their request of the Lord that the Lord establishes a law for all of Israel. Look at verses uh, 8 onwards. And you shall speak for, to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Can I say something? Women have rights. Now, that doesn't seem countercultural. That, that actually seems right now the most obvious thing. 
But we as a church, we believe that. Women have rights. They have dignity, value, worth. And brothers in Christ, you must believe that as well. You must live that. I'm proud to be a minister of the Free Church of Scotland. You know, when the Free Church of Scotland split from the Church of Scotland, it was in a culture where if you were to call a minister, the only person that could vote from a household was a male. No woman had to vote in Britain in 1843. But the fathers of the Free Church, in obedience to God's word, with respect of the equality of male and female in the image of God, recognized the dignity of women and said, when a minister is called, both male and female will vote. Women have their dignity. And so the next time you're asked, who are your heroines in the Bible? <laughs> Five daughters of Zelophefat. Now, we're not to stand in awe of them. We're to stand in awe of their God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. These five daughters, unlike their father, they hadn't been brought to the edge of the promised land. They didn't see that huge cluster of grapes. They probably only heard the report passed on to them by their father of what Joshua and Caleb saw. But they trusted. They trusted if that is the promised land, if there's a portion for us on the basis of who God is and what God has said, we'll hold God to that. And church, we got to live as a people filled with faith. This second generation is going to teach us anything. It's to live by faith, trusting in the promises of God. I wonder, does your faith impact your life? Does faith just the, ex the muscle you exercise when you're here on a Sunday? Does your faith impact your life Monday through Saturday? Does your faith impact your work? Does your faith impact your home life? Does your faith impact every single thing you do? How you spend your money, use your money, how you use your time, how you think, how you feel. Does your faith impact you? Now, let's be honest. We've studied the story of the first generation. God held out before them the promised land and instead of going forward in faith, they went backward in unbelief. And in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is set out before us. He calls us to faith every single moment of every single day. Does he impact us? Do we go forward with faith in him? Does he impact everything we do. In many ways, we are to stand in awe, not of these women, but of their God and of our God. I could give you a, a, a side tangent on covenant theology and why the covenant promises of God are for the people's children, or children after them. But I won't but I'm just putting that little thing out so we can maybe discuss it at a different, uh, another time. Thirdly and finally, we see God's faithfulness in the provision of a leader. So as this passage draws to end, we, we're, we're really coming to the end of the leadership of Moses and 
The Lord said to Moses, go up onto the mountain, see the land I've given to the people of Israel. Some people wonder, what was the motive of God saying to Moses this? He was not allowed to see the land because he'd been rebellious. He was not allowed to enter the land because he'd been rebellious. And, and, and so, so some commentators wonder, did God bring Moses up on this mountain and say, see, there's the land because you're sin, you ain't getting it. I don't think that was the reason. I think God in his grace and his generosity said, yeah, Moses, I've said you are not entering the land because of your sin, but as a leader of the people and God who acts in grace, I want you to see the land. I want you to take in the glorious inheritance. Now, what we have in the verses that follow is Moses' prayer. And it's a wonderful prayer. In response to what God has said, verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. If you ever pray for a, if we pray for another minister, this is a great prayer to pray. Who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. The congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Why is that such a glorious prayer to prayer? Well, because Moses was saying, God, give us a man after your own heart. God, give us a man who will care for the sheep of your flock and of your pasture. And God's answer to Moses' prayer was, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. And they laid hand on him. Normally the laying on of hands can be a picture of the, 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 someone receiving the Holy Spirit, but the laying on of hands here, I think the image is uh, the, the, the change of leadership, the passing on of the baton. Now, now, what's striking is Moses, Josh is not going to be a leader in the mold of Moses. Moses stands unique. Remember how Moses would commune with the Lord face to face. He would go before the Lord, talk to the Lord, go up in the mountain of the Lord, receive the Ten Commandments. Not so with Joshua. In fact, you know what's really striking is the way in which Joshua will communicate with the Lord is through Eleazar the priest and through a stone called Urim. Now, we don't fully understand the operational process of how Aram worked, God speaking through a rock, but, but that's how this was to play out. Why? Well, Moses was a Levite. Joshua is of the tribe of Ephraim. He couldn't enter the tent of meeting. For Joshua to enter the tent of meeting, that would be to bring upon his death. And so here we see that Joshua was made a leader, not giving all the, he was to receive some of Moses' authority. He was to lead the people. And so they laid hands on him and they commissioned him as the Lord directed. Now Dick's been preaching through Joshua. So you know Joshua. And so I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking here, but Joshua points us to the greater Joshua, to the greatest savior, Jesus. When's the next time we read in scripture? Sheep, as with no shepherd. When the Lord Jesus saw the multitudes. And what does God provide? He prides them Joshua. But Joshua is just going to be someone who points the people to the great leader that God will ultimately provide them with. Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the flock. The good shepherd who would lay down his life on behalf of his sheep. The good shepherd who would die himself. An atoning sacrifice so that the sins of all of his people could be forgiven. You know, as we bring this sermon to a close, we got to lift up our eyes of faith to a faithful God. And where do we see his faithfulness most clearly displayed? In Jesus. 
in Jesus' life, in Jesus' death, in Jesus' resurrection, in Jesus' ascension, and in Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father, because there he ever lives to pray for us. God is faithful. And if Numbers 26 and 27 prepare us for anything, it is for, the faith, it is for the faithfulness of God to his people, to his promises, and to provide us with a glorious saviour in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for how faithful you are, how glorious you are, how you showed that to your people of old, how you showed that to, your people, to us, your people, tonight. When we woke up this morning, you were faithful to give us new mercies because we are great sinners. We don't deserve this new day, but you've given us it. And you've filled it with so many blessings that we've taken for granted. And as we've thought on the, how faithful you are, especially seen in Jesus, we just want to come at the close of this Lord's Day and say thank you. As we go from here, we want to be those who live by faith, trusting in that which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you will take us into the promised land, into the new creation in him. Thank you that Jesus is our glorious inheritance and thank you that we are his. And we pray then as people of faith, that this faith would inform how we live tomorrow morning when we wake up and all the decisions we have to make. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.